Good morning. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. While you're, while you're turning there, let me read to you these lyrics. His heart beats. His blood begins to flow. Waking up what was dead a moment ago. And his heart beats. Now everything is changed. Because the blood that brought us peace with God is racing through his veins. And his heart beats. His heart beats. He breathes in. His living lungs expand. The heavy air surrounding death turns to breath again. He breathes out. He is word and flesh once more. The Lamb of God slain for us is a lion ready to roar, and his heart beats. So crown him the Lord of life. Crown him the Lord of love, and crown him the Lord of all. He took one breath and put death to death. Where is your sting, O grave? How great is your defeat. I know. I know. His heart beats. He rises, glorified in flesh, clothed in immortality, the firstborn from the dead. He rises, and his work's already done. So he's resting as he rises to reclaim the bride he won. And his heart beats. His heart beats. Let me start with this question. What are you? You. Not your family. Not your kids. Not your tradition. What are you celebrating this weekend? What are you so thankful for this weekend? Or are you thankful? Maybe just going through the motions. Does the death and resurrection of Jesus turn your affections warm toward the Father? Or is it emotionless, habitual movement? Does your heart move in gratitude? And does your gratitude lead to obedience, to action, to doing? Something turns your heart warm. Something does. The question is what? Let's read in Acts 19, 23 through 41. Here we go. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in, several, in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. 
And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she, she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If, therefore, Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly." For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I, I pray that as we study your word this morning, that she would bring dead hearts to life. She would make cold hearts warm. That you would convict of sin, but that you would also convict of the gloriousness of the cross and resurrection. Father, for your glory and our good, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, it says. The city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great goddess Artemis. We've talked a lot about this idea of idolatry. We talk a lot about idolatry as a church in general. We particularly talked a lot about idolatry in the book of Acts. Uh, we're going to talk about it again today. But today we're going to address it hopefully more thoroughly, more completely, and see it in light, hopefully, of the resurrection. So the first thing I want us to work through here very quickly is understanding idolatry. Understanding idolatry. We want to look at this passage, this very non-traditional resurrection passage. Let's look at understanding idolatry. First of all, what is an idol? Now as we dive into this, I, I, I want you to, if, 
if you're familiar with talking about idolatry, I don't want you to go, okay, well, there's nothing for me to learn today. There will be plenty for you to learn today, if nothing, at least, in application. But what is an idol? You say, well, I don't worship idols. I worship God, or I don't worship anything at all. I just get up each day and I kind of do my thing. But if we're going to get at a definition of idolatry, let me help you. Anything you believe brings you happiness, identity, hopefulness, or meaning in life. That is your idol. That is what you worship. Let me give you some examples. All right, let me, let me give you some worship language, if you will, here first, before I give you some examples. If I could just have that, I would be happy. Or if I could just get this in life, I would be hopeful. If I could just achieve that over there, whether it's in my job or in my homes or in my health or with my finances, I would have purpose. Let me pause for just a second. Stephen, are you hearing the ringing? I'm hearing a ringing. And maybe it's just in my ears, but if you could make note of that. Thank you. If I could just achieve that, if I could just have purpose, that's worship language. Hopefully right now in your mind you can think of something, whether from this morning or something from earlier today, or I guess that would be this morning, wouldn't it? Uh, or something from yesterday or earlier this week. Something that you said, if I could just have this, I would be happy. Let me give you some examples. If I could just get my kids to behave a certain way, I would be happy. If I could just get to a certain place in my relationship with my significant other, then I could have peace. If I could just achieve enough income, I would have hope. Maybe the next one, I'm mad right now because of this happening or this not happening. If it would just change, I would be happy. If it would just change, I would be satisfied. I would have purpose. Uh, Timothy Keller says this, Anything more important than God in the obtaining of your functional happiness, identity, hope, or meaning in life, that is your God. That is your God. And so, listen to me here. When God isn't enough, we create gods to bring us happiness, identity, hope, meaning. We fashion them with our hands. So sure, you and I may not take all of our silver and melt it down into shrines of Artemis and put them on the mantle. But when something becomes an item that you can't be happy without or hopeful without, it has been raised to a place of prominence in your heart. 
It has been raised to a place of idolatry in your heart. You have a worship altar in your heart, and you have placed that item right there. Think with me for a second back to Adam and Eve. At the heart of humanity's struggle is the fundamental desire to create gods that we can worship. You go, okay, well, I don't want to see that in, in Genesis. Where do you see that in Genesis? Let me help you for a second. Adam and Eve say, I can choose what is right and what is wrong for me, right? I can choose what is right and what is wrong. We have the ability, the wisdom. We are like God. We can choose what is right and what is wrong. That's another way of saying this. I can choose what will bring me happiness, identity, hope, or meaning in life. I can choose these things. It's not just I can discern what is morally good and morally bad, but it's in choosing all that is right and all that is wrong, and we can discern this, that including that which would bring me happiness, identity, hope, meaning in life fulfillment, so on and so forth. So therefore, here's what happens as a result of the fall, is that whatever I project from here and here to give me this satisfaction, happiness, identity, hope, meaning in life, that is my God. Now real quick, for most of us, if not all of us, we need to think just very practically, what is it Yesterday, for that 10 minutes that I just, I just couldn't get, and it was just driving me crazy. I, I lost my joy. I was angry. I was frustrated in that 10 minutes. What was it that you wanted that you could not have? That was your God. Now, here's the reality. The most powerful idols are the good things that we elevate to be ultimate things, right? We've heard this before. Why? Why are they so powerful? I think one of the reasons why they're powerful is because you don't see it clearly. It's, it's more overt, covert rather. It's more hidden. It's less obvious. Things like this. Parental approval. Achievement. Appearance. Kids. Pets. Moral records. Comfort, romantic relationships, social, political causes. It's easy to take these good things, bring them to the status of ultimate things, when we say of any of these things, if I could just have this in this area, or if it could just look this particular way, then I could be the person that I want to be, that I'm supposed to be. Or I could just be happy and satisfied if it would just be this way. See, what we don't understand is that at this point in the book of Acts, there was a God behind everything. We want to have good crops this year. We have a God for that. If we want good finances, there's a God for that. If we need rain, there's a God for that. If we need great uh, romance, there's a God for that. If we want good war success, there's a God for that. And they had God's behind everything that were physical and visible. 
someone I read said this, they were overt about something that we are covert about. They were conscious about something that we are completely unconscious about. Anything in this world, anything, good and bad, can be turned into a source of hope and meaning, and therefore an idol, a god. One easy way to tell if something has become an idol has become your God, your master, your salvation, your hope, is when other good things get rejected or neglected because I gotta have that. I gotta have that. That God there, I gotta satisfy, I gotta go get that, whatever it is. Examples. Men, sacrificing your families for success in your job. Success in your job, that's the idol. You neglect your family. Another example, sacrificing your church, men, for success in your family. Yes, that's possible. Singles, sacrificing your community for romance. Sacrificing your community, meaning church, for school. Again, all those are good things. But you can clearly see that something has become your God, your master, You're a slave to it when you're willing to sacrifice other things that you should be doing for the elevation of something else. Even if that, in its proper position, is a good thing. Ladies, sacrificing your husbands for your children. Or sacrificing close relationships in the body of Christ for any other good thing. List your option. So idols are anything other than God that you seek to bring you happiness, identity, hope, meaning, etc. And what I want you to understand is this, is that when this happens, what you're saying is this, the creator of the world, the one who made me, The holy, good, merciful, just, and kind God who sent Jesus to die for my sin and resurrected Him three days later where He now advocates on my behalf that that there just isn't enough for me right now. When you say that this I cannot have happiness. I cannot have meaning in life. I cannot have unless I have that. You know, oftentimes, as we'll look at here in a few moments, another way to tell if something has become an idol is when your emotions overrun you. So idolatry, what is idolatry? We've defined that. Next, idolatry, though, is a necessary component of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a necessary component of the gospel. 
Idolatry is at the root of the Bible's understanding of the human plight, our human condition, our human sinfulness. Idolatry is at the root of that. For some of you, this is why your understanding of the cross and resurrection is not life transforming or it doesn't have the kind of effect on your life that it should have because your gospel is anemic, meaning your gospel, or let me explain, your gospel doesn't include a rich understanding of our plight, of our problem, because idolatry is at the root of our problem. Acts 19, 26, it says this, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Here's what I want you to, 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 to gather from this. You rarely, if ever, hear Paul preach without preaching against idols. That's why you've heard it so many times already in the book of Acts. Paul says here and everywhere else that you're not allowed to create your own gods. And unless you contrast idolatry with the gospel, you will not fully understand the gospel. So the gospel is what? That you're saved, forgiven, justified by Jesus Christ and what He has done and not by what you have done. But here's the reality. Everyone is trying to be saved, trying to be forgiven, and trying to be justified through something that they're doing. That's humankind. We want to achieve this kind of life where we are saved, forgiven, where we are... Think of it this way. This idea of being saved and forgiven and justified. It's the idea of being whole again. Because we were broken. To be good. To be as if nothing is wrong. We all want that. We all want peace. We all want to be fulfilled. We want to be rescued from the problems that we see outside and inside of us. We want that. But we want to do that by doing, by our doing, by our creation, by our works. This is what happens with Adam and Eve. They believe they can accomplish this on their own. And so we want to choose what is right and what is wrong. They say we can choose for ourselves what will make us whole. What will make us good. What will make us justified. What will bring us peace, happiness, etc. And here's the issue. Here's the fundamental issue that's both true for Adam and Eve, it's true in Acts, it's true for us today, is that anything else to look for the solution anywhere else but God is idolatry. Fundamental to our human plight is idolatry. It's not just, listen, idolatry is not just a subcategory of our condition. It is the root of our condition. Everything else we have done and will do that required the death of Jesus stems from, is fruits of, our idolatry. 
It is the core issue at the root of the gospel. That's why Paul addresses idolatry. It's not because it's just apparent in the culture. It's apparent and it's, it's, it's present in every culture. It just looks differently. It looks different from person to person. It looks different from age group to age group. It looks different from race to race. But it's idolatry at its core. Now let's talk for a few moments about like the, the power and the powerlessness or the temporary success that idols bring and and yet, they also seem to let us down as well. They have power to bring success. If you don't believe me, look at the text. Look at the riot that is caused in this passage. It says, listen to this, that they chanted, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians for how long? Two hours. Can you imagine? It's hard for y'all to sit here for an hour and a half and just sit. They chanted for two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And that's only been three seconds. We also know from the passage that the people would have murdered Paul if the disciples would have let him into the place. They would have taken the life of Paul had the disciples around him let him go. They're powerful because they had perceived some measure of success. And the reality is, is for moments and seasons, you will feel happy. You will feel fulfilled, hopeful, like your identity is good. That's why, listen to me, that's why you keep going back to the job for success. Why you keep going back to that relationship. That's why you keep letting your children run your house. That's why you keep trying to meticulously manipulate all of your finances. It's why you try to run the relationships around you or hold things over people's heads. It's why. It's because you feel some measure of happiness, some measure of hopefulness when it is successful. And that's why this God of yours has such a hold, such a grip over your life. To paraphrase someone, if you take a good thing away from someone, they might be sad. But if you try to take away something that is ultimate, they will pick up the stones to throw. They will pick up stones to throw. Uh, your elders have many times over the years stood and will continue by God's grace for years to come to stand in the way of someone's idolatry, just as Paul is doing in this passage. Sometimes that's in the form of formal counseling. Sometimes it's just informal discipleship. A lot of times it's preaching. And I just, I just want to give you this warning, okay? I want to give you this warning. If you start to pick up stones to throw, you are almost certainly worshiping an idol. Because here's the reality. If you push on these things, if you push on someone's idolatry, like I am trying desperately to do right now, these idols have power to push back. 
They have power to push back. Why do you think the scriptures say in Ephesians 2.2, in which you once walked, each of us, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. There's power. The power of the air. There is power behind this idolatry. So when you push in on an idol, let me give you some examples of the stones that are thrown because they are likely not a rock. Well, you're not listening to me. That's a nice stone that gets thrown. You don't have ears to listen to me. Or you're not understanding me. Well, now you're being a bully. Or you're attacking me. Well, you're sinning in this area of your life. Oh, this is my favorite one. Well, we just interpret the Bible differently. Listen, idols bring temporary success because they legitimately have power. And we fail to see that. We underestimate the power of the gods that we try to worship. But what's interesting is that the scriptures also show us that idols are impotent in a sense. They are powerless also. One person said, idols always overpromise and always underdeliver. I want you to notice at the end of the story, it's real easy to, to, to wipe right over top of this. In verse 40, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. What's the point? What's Luke's point? Like, listen, this passage doesn't end with some great talk from Paul. It doesn't end with some great proclamation of the gospel like every other passage. What's it end with? It ends with the magistrate saying, there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. Here's the point. Here's the point. You crowd think that these guys are causing the issue. But there is no issue. There is no cause. The problem is your worship of these idols. That's Luke's point. Luke's point is there's no issue going on here. The point is, is that the idolatry is causing the disruption. Luke's point is this, the idolatry of the people is letting them down. The idols are letting them down. They cannot, here's Luke's point. Your idols, the gods you worship, cannot even stand up to some words by some random dudes showing up in our town. You're worried about the great goddess Artemis of Ephesians losing her magnificence. Now the magistrate's not saying it, but that's Luke's point. You're worried these guys come into town and all of a sudden this great goddess whom the whole world worships, the passage says, might lose her magnificence because of what these guys are saying. That's Luke's point. Your idols are impotent. Let's talk for a few moments about the effects of idolatry. Very quickly here. From this passage here. Idols cause confusion. I love 
in the middle of Luke's account here, he says that the city was filled with confusion. For some did not even know why they were rioting. It's almost like Luke was looking into the 20th century or the 21st century America. Some did not even know why they were rioting. Do you realize that many times when we get angry or depressed, you really don't even know why? Listen, I know if it's true, if I sit in the counseling room with someone who's angry and upset or even depressed, to, to help them think through this, and at, the, at best, they think the reason is this, and then as we talk and work through it and study the Scriptures together, they realize that wasn't the reason. It's really this reason over here according to God's Word. That's just confusion. Why are we even rioting? Why, why am I even feeling this way? I don't even know what's going on. And at worst, it's just confusion and having no clue what is causing this. It's easy to think that because so-and-so did this or this circumstance happened that this is why I'm confused, why I'm struggling. But we know from the Scriptures, right, that God is not a God of confusion. When you have confusion, it's likely because you're worshiping an idol. You want something so bad that God isn't enough for you. And in that place, there's always confusion. And so when you get into that place, you can't hear His voice. You can't remember His Scriptures. You can't see His hand moving. It's confusion. Why am I even here? Idolatry causes confusion. Idolatry is also coupled with pride. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and great are we because of her. You understand that that's their argument. That's what Luke is showing us. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, but we're great because of her. Verse 27, And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Here's what they're saying. We have fashioned this God, and if she loses her glory, then we will lose ours too. We will lose the benefits of her magnificence. And here's the reality. When you and I fashion an idol, whether it's affirmation of your kids, your spouse, success at a job, financial status, Your magnificence is wrapped up in it. Your pride is wrapped up in it. Why? Because it's a product of your hands. And you find great fulfillment and identity and success and happiness in the products of your hands. And if that product of your hand goes down, if it gets slammed, if someone comes along and says it's not good enough, or 
God forbid, says that it's sinful, your ego gets slammed. And the effects of this is, well, you certainly can't reason then with those around you. We always want to close off dissenting voices because we just can't in that moment deal with the fact that what we have fashioned with our hands is not good enough to save me in this moment. The third effect of idolatry is death. Is death. Even though no one dies in this passage, death is all over this passage. Here, the men sought to make Paul die so that they could live. They would have killed Paul most certainly. He quotes someone here, When you need something from another person to make you feel okay, to make you feel whole, to make you feel satisfied, happy, you will kill them with your expectations, and they will kill you with their imperfections. Why? Well, we've talked about certainly how they can't bear that weight of your expectations. Your expectations are too high for any created thing. But it's also practically because once you get your expectations met, they will shift. They will not be happy. Your expectations, your idolatry, to stay right there the next time the expectations go up. As an idolatry always leads to death. Both your death and the death of the people around you. This is our plight. This is our problem. We're all running around searching for happiness, wholeness, hope, identity all day long. And we do it looking someplace other than God. And it leads to death. Listen, God, the creator of the world, the one who fashioned us and formed us in his image, we say with our pursuits that he is not enough. And so we deserve death both practically and deservedly, because we are saying God is not enough. The creation, the things around us other than God, we say these things, they will make me happy, they will make me whole, they will make me feel saved and redeemed and justified as if nothing is wrong. And I don't need God to tell me what will satisfy my soul, what will make me whole. I know. And so let me go manipulate life. Let me go make things happen. Let me go have these conversations I need to have in order to secure my idol. This is our plight. Some of you see this and fight for this every day. You see it. You, you see the idolatry that's crouching at the door. It's always before me. I hate it. 
It's so powerful. And because of it, I deserve hell. That is our plight. Every last one of us. But thank God that there is hope. Thank God that there is hope. Let me read to you Romans 6, verses 5 through 10. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin, read idolatry, read idolatry, so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Read idolatry. No longer enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. Idolatry requires death. It leads to death and it requires death. Someone has to die for your idolatry and my idolatry. And the good news is, is that Jesus came to die the death that idolatry requires. Every last ounce. He came to die the death that your idolatry requires. John 19, second part of verse 16. So they took Jesus. He went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There, they crucified him. Idolatry requires death. Why does idolatry require death? Practically here, idolatry, you need to understand, is nothing but spiritual adultery. It's a spiritual affair. It's like a woman who is married turning to other men. It's like a man who is married turning to other women. You are playing the adulterer. When you put your heart In the arms of another God, you're committing spiritual adultery. Just read the Old Testament. What was the penalty for adultery? Death. Death. The penalty for adultery was death. The penalty for you and I is death. But what we know is that Jesus... Our true husband came to earth for his adulterous 
bride. And he pays the price of death on the cross for her. He died in our place as the adulterer. He took the punishment of the one who committed adultery. He bore the cost for that. How could he do that? How could he bear the cost? Because Jesus was, even in his most sorrowful moment, shows us covenant-keeping faithfulness. He shows us anti-adultery. In his hardest, hear me, hardest moment, your hardest moment is when it just doesn't seem like your bills are working out right. Or your hardest moment is when, when that relationship just won't go the way you want it to go. Or my child just won't get to where I need them to be. Or my job just won't give me what I want my job to give me. Or And Jesus' hardest moment is the moment that his father turns his back on him for the first time ever. For his first time ever, as he's not just, God doesn't just take his hand away from the son, but exchanges his sight of pleasure, his look of pleasure upon his son, and exchanges that for the weight of his wrath and judgment. It's in that hardest moment that Jesus says, my God, my God. Right? The famous line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus isn't saying God's name in some derogatory fashion. Jesus is expressing covenantal faithfulness anti-adultery in that moment, in his greatest, most difficult moment, he says, you are still my God. You are still my God. What's he saying? You're still enough for me. My identity is still wrapped up in you. My heart is not swaying to anything else. I'm not looking to anything else right now for hope. In the midst of my misery. I'm not reaching for anything else to make me feel whole or satisfied right now. You're my God. You're enough. And as we know in this moment, right, the evil powers of the flesh. We just talked about the, the, the power behind idolatry, right? This, this prince of the power of the air and such from Ephesians 2. As someone said, once the evil powers of the flesh, the devil and its idolatry come upon Jesus, it says he defeated them all. He defeated them 
all. Colossians 2.15 says this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. At least in part, how does Jesus triumph over these rulers and authorities as he's on the cross? As he says, even in this moment, as all the weight of the world, the wrath of God is bearing down on me, life is not as it should be. It's broken, it's miserable, this is terrible. Jesus says, my God. He said, I'm not going to look anywhere else. My eyes are fixed on you. So Jesus came and died, died the death that idolatry requires. And the resurrection says that Jesus defeated the death that idolatry causes. The beginning of Luke 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Listen, the resurrection sets you free from the death of idolatry. The death of those around you because of your idolatry. The death upon the joy of your soul because of your idolatry. And the ultimate death as payment that you deserve. The resurrection shows us that we can be set free from the death of idolatry. The resurrection says you get your life back. The one in God that you were meant to have. Where your hope, your meaning, your identity rests in Him. It's the reversal of the effects of idolatry. He's breathing. He dies the death of idolatry. As the one who committed none of. And then He breathes again. You certainly can see the love of the Father for His Son in the resurrection. He says, Son, your work is complete. It was finished. It was perfect. I accept your sacrifice. You can also see the love of the Father for His children through the resurrection. This is how you are set free from idolatry. Hear me here. Your heart has been set free from the bondage of idolatry. Your heart can now love God supremely, despising the repulsiveness of idolatry because of the resurrection. In idolatry, the object of worship is ever before you. It's always on your mind. You think about it all the time. You dwell on it. 
You plan and scheme ways to make it happen. You spend money to get it right. I was experiencing this even as I was studying this morning. Something wanting to take my attention over here. Take my attention over here. Just taking my mind and my heart and my affections over here. Over here. Kept doing it. My own sinfulness leading me this way. But here's the deal. If you want to be set free from idolatry, if you know that you need to be set free from idolatry, here's what you need. You need to see Jesus laying in the tomb having died for your adultery. Having bore the sin for your adultery. See Him in the tomb where you should be laying. See Him there. You need to see Jesus resurrected because God our Father is pleased with His sacrifice for your idolatry. You need, listen, you need to see that until it melts your heart. Until your affections are turned. Until money becomes just money. Until people become just people, until romance becomes just romance, until comfort becomes simply comfort, until your children become just children, and not your saviors. And Jesus Christ is. Then you will be set free. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, thank you for not just good stories, Father, but for the reality of someone who came, none other than your Son, to die on the cross for our sin. And not just bad things we do, but idolatry, spiritual adultery. Father, thank you that he came, died this death that we deserve. That he was put in a tomb, laying there on those stones, having just bore the wrath that was due for our sinfulness. Father, I pray that we see the reality of this, that it would melt our hearts of stone. That it would awaken our eyes and our hearts to see the subversiveness of our hearts and minds. Where we take good things, turn them into ultimate things, and worship them as though they are gods having been fashioned by our hands. May we see him in the tomb, dying the death that we deserved. 
every last ounce of what we deserve. And Father, may we see in the resurrection that it was successful. That it was finished. His work was done. It was completed. And Father, that we can be raised to new life with Him. Set free from the death that should be ours because of our idolatry. I thank You for the cross. Thank You for the resurrection. For it's in Your Son's name we pray. Amen.